first one was the, the one that people were really afraid of. And it didn't make a lot of damage. And then next week after that, oh, there's Hurricane Maria coming. The region was still rebounding from the last storm, Irma, when Maria rolled in. We've never had any back-to-back -back hurricanes before. Yolanda Maldonado has been... And this thing just got bigger and bigger by the minute. And I think the day before, people started really freaking out. The All the news uh, outlets were like, this is probably going to be the worst hurricane in our history. first category four to hit there in nearly a century. 150 mile an hour winds ripping... It wasn't scary until I started hearing the the sound of the wind. It sounds like it's mad, you know? It's like it's angry. This thing is angry and she's... And it just want to break us into pieces. Gusting above 120 miles per hour, severing the tops of the palm trees and ripping off the board. The tree outside just crumbled to the ground from the, the roots. And, and I started like doubting what am I going to see tomorrow when I go up. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Carlos Goico on living through Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. This is the second installment of our Puerto Rico series, where we are trying to explore how destruction sows the seeds of opportunity and growth. And Carlos embodies this idea perfectly. Rather than letting the winds of disaster pin him down to the ground, Carlos's love for his community mobilized him to create Libro 787, an online bookstore focused on selling books by Puerto Rican authors. He started the company as a passion project to help his country in the aftermath of a disaster, but after winning over $70,000 from multiple accelerator programs, Libro 787 has become much more than a hobby. It's a way for Carlos to spread the treasure of Puerto Rican culture. And his love for his country started young, in the town of Ponce. When I was young, I, I was born and raised in the south of Puerto Rico, in a town called Ponce. We are very proud, like, we come from there and we're always bragging about Ponce as if it was something really big. Founded in 1692 and named for the great-grandson of... My grandfather, who passed away a few years uh, back, his parents are from Germany, so they basically came from the Hitler era and all that, and they arrived in, in Cuba. There are an estimated 20 million people of full or partial ethnic German descent in Latin American countries today. And after that, they went to the States, and my grandfather came to Puerto Rico being in the military, having no clue of, of what he was going, basically. And he met my grandmother, and he stayed here. And here, he had his own pharmacy and stuff. He had his office on his house. He was always there working at his computer. And for me, it was normal, because that's the only thing I've seen him do. He was always on phone calls talking to customer service, asking for what he believes he, he needs. He didn't take no nonsense, but at the same time, he was really kind to us as, as grandchildren. Uh, 
we used to go walking from my my house to his house. One day I was walking to to his house and I noticed like a envelope on the floor. And I took the envelope, I opened it and there was a hundred dollars in it. Random. I don't know why was that there, I don't know. I saw the money, I was like, whoa, it's a lot. And I took it and I told him about it. And he was like, oh, but do you know who this is? And I was like, no, I have no idea. And he didn't even tell me, like, oh, let's find out who the owner is or anything. And he was like, ah, oh, you just keep it. If, if someone asks for it, then we'll give it back, but just keep it. The order of his grandfather's words is important. He first tries to locate the rightful owner, and upon realizing that the owner wasn't obvious, the money is pocketed. There are these soft ethical boundaries that flank the entrepreneurial drive. And I think this makes a lot of sense in the context of fleeing Nazi Germany. On some level, his grandfather had to act out of self-interest and self-preservation to survive. And Carlos's mind was steeped in these ideas. And the success of his grandfather's pharmacy only further cemented that these ideas were of merit. Drawing inspiration from his grandfather and the entrepreneurial ethos of Ponce, Carlos would take his first leap into the world of entrepreneurship. One day I started making these puppets, these paper puppets that, I don't know, you fold the paper like in eight times and then you get a, like, a, like, a, like a puppet with the mouth and you put your fingers in it and just move the mouth around. And I started like drawing on it, like different eyes and mouth and stuff. And all of my friends were like, ah, oh, that's cool, I want one. And I, okay, if you want one, you have to give me like maybe some lunch or something. So I started exchanging these things. It was not for money. The, the exchanging things that I, I built, that this, it was kind of cool and fun for other people. And they giving me something back. I, I, I like that. Did your parents or your grandfather know about any of this? Man, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And I, I, I think they wouldn't be very much fun of it either. Like, just ask us for money and we'll give you for lunch. Stop taking lunch from your, your, your schoolmates. Carlos's desire to sell puppets didn't stem from necessity. Money was more of a metric of success, a way to see if he was winning at the game of supply and demand. This desire to win would soon translate to sport. In Puerto Rico, if you want to play some sport, you just go at a community park with your friends and like a pickup game. I didn't play until I was like 16 when I saw the, the Germany World Cup. I think that was 2006, something like that. Before that, I used to play a lot of basketball and volleyball and, and baseball because baseball is like everyone plays baseball when he's a little kid here in Puerto Rico also. But I never, I wasn't really good at any of those sports. Uh, I, I like to play it with my close friends because I felt like I was an outcast when we played with really good kids because they were yelling at you, you suck and I don't want you to play with us because you suck. I don't know. At that time when I saw the, the World Cup, I, I just enjoyed it and I called my friend and I was like, let's get some soccer cleats and, and just start playing because not a lot of people played soccer in Puerto Rico by then. And I don't know, I just fell in love with the sport. After playing sport, I kind of got a, a lot of more discipline. That competitiveness that it grew on me, I still imply, uh, apply that to, to, to the business side of everything that I'm doing right now. Initially, Carlos's competitiveness was reserved for selling puppets and playing soccer. 
But sport soon became an effective teacher. It bestowed upon him the importance of grit. Grit infused with the ferociousness of competitive drive. And unexpectedly, this grit found its way back to school. There was one, it's like a fair, like a student fair, and everyone was assigned to do like a project that was related to, to commerce or I, I cannot even remember what we did. But I remember that we won. But I remember, yeah, that, that when we were on the fair, I was taking it very seriously. Like, what's the table? Uh, we have a mantle here. We had to put this. Okay. And they were like putting stuff really randomly. I don't know. Organize this thing. Let's, <laughs> let's get it working. You know, you, you got to get this like aesthetics right. And, and I don't know. People were walking around. They asked us about it. I, I remember like me being like every time wanted to jump into the conversation. Like, yeah, this is our project. We're doing this and that. Just selling, you know, like yeah. selling, even though we weren't selling anything. But it was just in my nature to just present myself, trying you to like what I made or, you know, that's the essence of selling, basically, uh, for me. I wasn't trying to, to be a, a seller, but I wasn't trying to be an entrepreneur or something. I just was being me. Carlos had a natural charisma, a magnetic pool that just seemed to demand attention. Whether it was exchanging puppets for his classmates' lunches or promoting a friend's tech project, he relished the idea of making something of substance. He prided himself in winning. However, accruing attention, chasing praise, all that can superficially inflate the ego. At some level, Carlos recognized this. He didn't invest himself in the computer and commerce club out of passion. He balanced a fragile identity on his ability to win a trophy. But luckily, college was a place of revelation, a place where Carlos could develop a more concrete sense of self. Entrepreneurship and all this stuff, this is really new here in Puerto Rico. So they basically raise you to be or either a doctor, engineer, or lawyer. So of those three, engineering was the only one that made sense to me because I didn't like medicine and I didn't like being a lawyer either. I entered uh, a really prestigious uh, school in Mayagüez that is very uh, related, you know, engineer-driven uh, school. I didn't have the GPA to, to get into engineering, but I was so caught up in, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to be an engineer and stuff, that I just... Uh, enter that the the school in economy. I think I kind of like kept telling myself lies, like, yeah, you're gonna be an engineer. When I really wasn't even sure what engineering was. Every Sunday, my parents took me to Maya West. It's like on the west side of Puerto Rico. It's like a 40-minute drive. And as soon as my friend arrived, also he was like. Uh, what do you want to drink today, man? Sundays, you know. And I was like, that wasn't the first time I was being alone by myself. I felt really independent. And I was like doing all the things that I couldn't do when I was living with my parents. <sighs> Sunday drinking. Monday, first class in the morning, I was all hung up and shit. That was the, the patterns that I started like doing in, in that semester. Uh, I didn't get bad grades, but I didn't feel confident that I was going to succeed on what I was trying to do. Like, I was, like, partying a lot. Yeah. 
one day I just realized that the engineering stuff wasn't going to happen. And I just called my mother and, and told him, mom, if you want me alive, I need to go back to Ponce because here it's just going to be awful for me. I got, got back to Ponce and everything started like flowing a lot more better. Especially I was back in home. My mom was cooking for me again. Uh, I don't know. I felt comfortable because I knew I needed some sort of guidance. I need some parental control because if not, I'm just going to go crazy again. And and I changed the, the bachelor's to, to uh, international business. So I gave it a shot. And man, it was awesome. I love every class. Uh, I love the the environment i fit in really well in international business carlos was back on track the traditional path of success he had followed the one that told them to be an engineer because that was what quote unquote successful people did only led him to a dead end now he was following a route that was one of slightly more agency he still was in school but he had made a decision that led him closer to his passion business but honestly, switching majors isn't that big of a deal. Carlos was still trying to color his life based on someone else's vision of success, and he needed to look outside the lines and color his college experience with something more exciting, something a bit more adventurous. My second year of, of, of college, a friend of mine, he told me, dude, what are you doing this summer? And I was like, boom, the same thing I do every summer, just chill. I don't know. And he was like, uh, would you be interested like, in working at a summer camp in the States? Uh, I'm going there also. And I was like, hell yeah, let's go. He told me like, oh, it's, uh, there's a, like a basketball counselor spot and I didn't even play basketball. <laughs> And man, I went there and, I don't know, that changed my whole perspective of, of life. This is the first time I'm getting into an airplane by myself without my parents uh, and having the opportunity to live somewhere else in the world for at least two months. I just start meeting all these new people from all over around the world. One minute I'm talking to a kid from Italy. Giorno. One another minute I'm talking from some from, from Spain. Hola. Someone from from Iran. All those different perspectives like started shaping me like in a new way. There was one group that came from Israel. And at one point, they were talking about what Israel is like. And I was very interested, very interested on the topic because of my grandfather. I remember one day, the, they gave the news that Israel, they, they did some bombings. Or some, you know, Israel is like in a very conflicted space. And something happened near where they live. And, and they were really bummed out about it. And they were crying. These this were like kids that I, I was the counselors of. And I just started like talking to them. Ah, what's going on? And they started thinking. It was really strange for me, like to put into perspective, because I've never been through that. I started like being more appreciative of the things that I've always had. Carlos was a ball of inquisitive energy, trying to explore the wealth of diversity around him. This camp was an expansion of his world, not just from a perspective of location but because of the intimate interaction he had with people from all over the world. 
seeing the collision of different cultures at summer camp, listening to their stories and seeing them intermingle, engaged his mind. It gave him a new project, a new direction, inspiration, so much so that he would immediately look for more opportunities to travel. I went from Puerto Rico to the United States. Everything went good. I felt confident. I didn't feel afraid, homesick. So I was like, hmm, let me take this uh, one step further and, and think about doing a master's degree abroad. I met a girl in that summer camp. I, I was a really, really good friends with her. And every day we, we, are, we were talking and one day we started like planning, ah, we should do something in Spain from the, with sports and stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know, out of nowhere came the conversation, ah, maybe I should go there and do a master's degree. That experience started going downhill like, man, I thought I was going to go there. I'm going to study sports management. I'm going to get a job at a, at a soccer club, a really important one. And then I'm going to just be a successful guy and marry this girl and stay working in Spain for the rest of my Perfect life. Perfect plan. Yeah, yeah. Nothing could go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> nothing at all, man. I remember that the, the first week I got there. Uh, I was staying at, at her house, her parents' house. They like, made like a room for me. And this girl, she was working every day, all day. And I was alone in, in her house with her parents. And it was just so awkward, man. She, she always arrived like at 9 p.m. Because she was a tennis coach. And I was like, ah, yeah, let's talk. You know, let's talk. And she was like, man, I'm tired and just... And she went to sleep, and every day was like that. I was shit. This is not going well. This is not what I planned for. And the master's degree sucked, man. The program was terrible, and I just couldn't fit in anywhere. And I was like, shit. At least I want to meet some people and hang out. Uh, but none of that, man. It was terrible. Spain is a really uh, a tourist uh, destination. So they're so used to tourists that it's just like, okay, we just get, uh, go on with our lives and just leave the tourists alone and trying to finish like, oh, guys, what are you doing this weekend and stuff? And they were, oh, we're going to party and stuff. But they didn't invite me. They were telling me their plans. I was expecting like, uh, yeah, invite me, man. And they were, nah, we're just going to go to some disco in Valencia and stuff. And I was like, okay. Instead of living happily ever after with the girl of his dreams riding off into the Spanish sunset, Carlos was hit with a much bleaker reality. In Spain, he was invisible. Nobody. Which is quite an adjustment for someone like Carlos, who is accustomed to being a leader in a small town where attention was more or less focused on him. In this time, he couldn't just change his mind without consequence. Previously, Carlos had gotten away with impulsivity. He decided to go to a summer camp in the States on a whim, and it turned out to be great, but this time he wasn't so fortunate. His parents couldn't bail him out. He was living in the real world, dealing with real stakes. So he made the mature decision to march on, but things were only going to get harder. We went to France as part of our master's degree. Everything was going bad. By this time, I think I was depressed and all that. I was just like, I want to get this shit over with and just go back to Puerto Rico. I'm, just, I'm not going to quit. I'm ready to do it with the engineering stuff. And my parents took a loan for this shit. I cannot tell them the, that I'm leaving because I cannot stand this. This is too hard for me. 
after all those good experiences that I had and summer camp and all that stuff, it was like, wow, this is how it's going to end. I kind of got in this hole that it was like really difficult to go out and change the chip and just have fun because there were things that I could do to have fun. It's just I wasn't there. Like in the, I wasn't feeling it. I remember crying a lot over there. I was having a, tr a hard time also with the, the thesis that I had to do because the director of that master's degree, he was really responsible and I was really taking me a lot of work to, to do that master's degree without, without the, the guidance and stuff that they, they, they're supposed to give you. I had that capstone project like 80% done or probably more. And I don't know, I went partying one day by myself, got hammered. And I remember that I stopped at a, at a, at a sandwich shop in, in Spain, right? Right before going to my, to my apartment. And I bought this sandwich and this Diet Coke. And I brought it to my bed because I always use the laptop to like fall asleep. Started watching TV and I was just so drunk that I fell asleep. And the Diet Coke uh, fell, uh, drip all over the laptop. When I woke up the next morning, I, the first thing I see is my laptop drip like in, in Diet Coke. Then I went all over Valencia uh, to find somewhere I could, I could uh, restore it. Luckily, I did. But I was just tired of everything. I just wanted to leave there. And nothing good can happen here. I just want to end this and leave, man. Diet Coke on his laptop was the wave that sank Carlos's already leaking ship. But his suffering abroad wasn't for naught. It taught him how to weather the storm. Being able to stand steady in the face of adversity is the difference between success and abject failure for most entrepreneurs. Every new venture, every new decision is always met with resistance. And if you cannot center yourself, you'll flounder and drown. Entrepreneurs develop unique coping mechanisms to deal with adversity. And Carlos had unknowingly honed his skills abroad. But like after any storm, the sun was starting to shine. And the grass on the soccer fields had never looked greener. Looking backwards, a lot of bad things happened to me there and I didn't feel good. But I, what, we, what I can extract from the whole experience are positives. I started thinking about, man, if I survive that, I can do anything I want here in Puerto Rico. and Nobody can stop me. And as soon as I got back, I started like uh, building this summer camp. I just started thinking, okay, I have experience. I learned a lot during the camp that in the States, like about logistics and stuff. But camps over there are way to next level organized than here in Puerto Rico. By then, like soccer was growing a lot. And especially like for little kids and stuff, uh, the parents were going nuts. They wanted to put them in the best soccer academy, especially the, the parents with a lot of money. I just started talking with, with the contest I had there and I... We started organizing it and we did it and it was, oh man, it was kind of stressful uh, because I didn't have a lot of knowledge either on how to make a business, like the, the legal aspects of it. So I basically, I don't know, I incorporated the whole thing by myself. I started doing, probably not, did not do it by the book. Marketing on social media, started spending a little bit of budget on, on ads and Facebook and stuff. And it started like getting some traction. I remember the, the first summer we did it, we got like probably 200 kids 
and they were all paying like they were paying like 400 but it was really legit like we did it like very organized the logistics were like really close to the summer camp I went in the states everything was really professional and man the parents loved it and it was a total success his soccer camp was a success but that wasn't due to pure luck or solely hard work Carlos had a unique ability to take his experience, to take his disparate interests and combine them into something that works. He easily could have forgotten his experience at summer camp and said, hey, that time in my life was just about courting a girl. Instead, he applied the logistical information he had learned and created something new. And I think this is a turning point for Carlos. His naive perception of winning was maturing. He was realizing that winning wasn't just about shiny trophies. It was about failing, reorganizing, cross-pollinating, and getting back up. And his resolve would continue to be tested. I think I got really greedy and I said, okay, the first year we did it and it was a blast. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do one in Ponce where I live. So instead of one summer camp, I did two on the same summer. And it wasn't the same because the expenses went up compared to the first year that I got a lot of things for free because nobody believed in me. By the second year, everyone's like, oh, this, this, this kid is getting a lot of success and a lot of money from this. Let's just start charging him for, for stuff. And I wasn't counting on that. But I managed to like pay everyone off. But by the end, I didn't, I think I didn't have anything, maybe 20 bucks or something on their account. Some back and forth went on with the soccer coaches and I started like noticing that they were taking advantage of the situation because they were hiking up the prices and stuff. And I wasn't confident enough to negotiate because I didn't have a lot of experience and I was afraid that they would tell me, oh, we're not, we're not going and everything just crumbles down. Right. So I was in this hard position to like agree with everything. And I found myself at the end that this wasn't worth it, like carrying on with this project because it was just not sustainable. What do you think you learned from that? Did you think of yourself like, hey, I made a business? Yeah, I took some positive notes and some negative notes. And the positive was like, yeah, I, I just built something that was great because this experience was great. I made something by my own. Look at all those kids like playing, like 200 kids there. Their parents are happy. Everyone is happy. So at least I got the proof of concept that I am capable of, of doing something that is good and professional. And maybe this is just not it, but I'm capable of. On the other side, it was like probably structure, uh, some experience on, on negotiation, finance, especially legal aspects of doing a business and stuff, because I was all over the place. I was taking money out of the bank like crazy and paying people off in cash. It was just nuts. But, but yeah, being more organized in the logistics aspect and the financial aspect is the thing that I was, okay, I need to work on this. Carlos's early brush with success turned out to be a dose of beginner's luck. Just long enough to catch a glimpse of a lifestyle he could have, of the impact he could make. He was initially able to make progress because his community rallied around his underdog status and helped him to advance his ambitious plans. However, he cashed in favors without knowing their true cost. When favors produce profits, the benefactors want returns. His community was no different. 
I think success can alienate you from your community. The higher you climb, the further you drift from your roots. Until at least in their eyes, you were nothing but a businessman. Ultimately, this label led him to failure. Needing time to recuperate, when he saw an opening for a desk job, he sank to the nine to five. Why wasn't your next move? All right, let's just do the next thing. Man, I was just so tired of all that from the summer camp to Spain and then doing the summer camp here in Puerto Rico. It was just like a streak of, I don't know, maybe four years in a row of just doing a lot of shit. And I was like just worn down. And I was like, okay, I have this rush and I feel capable doing but I need a break or something. And, and at the same time, I was like, okay, what can I do right now to at least earn some money? Because I don't have any amount of money on my bank account. And I also have my parents like barking on my neck, like, dude, you need to, to do something. You need to get a real job. And I was like, okay, maybe I should try and get a real job and see what happens. And I never like worked at a, uh, an office job. This was like, okay, maybe let's try it out. What's the worst that can happen? So like things just got like simple. Yeah. And that's the thing that I started like getting bored, bored about. Yeah. So who were you working for? What exactly were you doing? Well, the, the, the company is a, it's a book distribution company in San Juan. I have no experience working in the book industry at all. Nothing at all. But this guy that was the, the COO, he wanted me there because he had seen all the work that I had done with my own projects and he liked the marketing aspects of stuff that I did. So he called me for that. For the most part, Carlos enjoyed his sabbatical from the turbulence of entrepreneurship. It was a necessary stepping stone. One that allowed him to recover while comfortably making ends meet as he planned his next steps. But comfort tends not to last. And no one could have predicted what would come next for Carlos and the rest of Puerto Rico. We'll be right back after this break. Adrian and I have been grinding on some Finding Founders work. And uh, I don't know about you, Adrian, but I'm a little hungry. Dude, I'm starving. I'm pretty hungry for some McDonald's fries, but I don't have the secret recipe and I kind of want to make it at home. So let's see if we can get that secret recipe. Hello, thank you for calling here from McDonald's. It's Teddy. How can I help you? I was wondering how you guys go about making your fries. No, I'm not really sure what you're asking, sir. Like, like what, what is your process for making fries? Like, how does, how do you guys make it? Now, unveiling the McDonald's fries secret recipe. We get natural cut natural fries. Cut fries. And we cook them in a deep fryer. Deep fryer. For approximately three minutes. Well, they get raised out of our basket. Raised out of baskets. And they're drained for 10 seconds. 10. Seconds nine eight. They're loaded into uh, our fry bay. They're salted. So much salt. And then they get loaded into uh, fry cartons and put in the bags of food for our lovely customers. Lovely customer. Oh, that actually uh, sounds pretty simple. It sounds like almost as simple as like sharing a podcast. <laughs> Dude, you guys, I can help you with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just sounds super simple. Like, you can, like, share a, a podcast by, like, 
taking a screenshot or tagging Finding Founders and posting it to the social media of your choice? Uh, well, that's probably not what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> but if the owner of this particular chain wants to do that, then I'm sure that he will. Oh, he will? I'm sure that he would if that's something he chose to do. I heard you say, my word is my bond and I promise through the highest mountaintops in all the land that I will tell <laughs> my manager to do this very thing or death. <laughs> do you not remember that? Well, I am the manager, and I said that if the owner chooses to do that, he will inform us, and it will happen. It will happen. All right. Well, thank you for making it happen, and I appreciate your time. So now you know the secret McDonald's fry formula and how to share finding founders. So share this podcast with a friend. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Now, back to the podcast. Twenty seventeen, they say another hurricane's coming. This is Hurricane Maria. Can you tell me what you thought when you heard like the weather report? In Puerto Rico, every year it's like hurricane warnings. It's very normal here. We had two hurricanes like in a month. The first one was the the one that people were really afraid of, and it didn't make a lot of damage. And then next week after that, oh, there's Hurricane Maria coming. And we were like, oh, okay, because the first one was supposed to be the, the, the worst one. A hurricane warning remains in effect from 2 a.m. this morning to 4.15 a.m. for the state of Puerto Rico within the following counties only. And this thing just got bigger and bigger by the minute. It was kind of surreal at the moment. I was like, okay, seems pretty bad, but I've lived in Puerto Rico all my life. I've been through hurricanes. It was not at all what I was expecting. And we were just not paying attention. And I think the day before, people started really freaking out. The, all the news uh, outlets were like, okay, this is serious. Like, this is probably going to be the worst hurricane in our history and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, shit, what? And I just started like panicking and well shit we cannot be here man to stay here for this hurricane. So I left that house and went to my sister's house. It wasn't scary until I started hearing the the sound of the wind. It sounds like it's mad, you know, it's like it's angry, this thing is angry and she's and it just wanna break us into pieces. Gusting above 120 miles per hour, severing the tops of the palm trees and ripping off the boarding that's on buildings. There's a high rise. But yeah, it was terrifying, man. It, and it was a few hours of that, like intense. The tree outside just crumbled to the ground from the, the roots. I wasn't afraid of what's, what's going to happen to me because I was in a safe house, but I started thinking, whoa, what about these people that live in wooden houses and doesn't have the security that I have right here? And, and I started like doubting, what am I going to see tomorrow when I go out? I don't know, we went outside and you can see, man, it, I didn't even knew that the wind burns the, the leaves in the trees. It's just crazy. It, it, it doesn't blow them away. It burns them. 
Hurricane Maria was deemed the worst hurricane ever to hit Puerto Rico in recorded history. East Coast, we're coming on the air right now because Hurricane Maria has made landfall on Puerto Rico. The strongest storm this island has faced in nearly a century. Tonight, that death toll now 2,975 lives lost. People are still being rescued. The island is destroyed. And although Carlos was sheltered from danger in his sister's home during the storm, it's clear that the devastating visuals have been vividly seared into his memory. The wind peeling roofs off houses, burning leaves off of trees, and ripping trees with the roots clean out of the ground can really remind you of your own mortality. They certainly awoke a higher level of urgency and purpose in Carlos. At first, I didn't think about the job because by that time, I was like starting to think about what was my next thing to do. It doesn't give me that, that adrenaline rush that I need, that competitiveness. But by that point, I was like, okay, there's nothing that I can do. I kind of accepted the reality that it was just not up to me. And I just went back to Ponce again. During that week, no power, no electricity, no nothing, man, not even water. No communications. All the communications were out for at least like a month. No internet, no phone connection, nothing. It was just like primitive years. And man, the first days were like trying to look for, for some Wi-Fi connection or something. Like, like the Wi-Fi that you get from the cellular connection. Nothing. I was just desperate, man. And my dad was like, dude, there's not going to be anything for a while. So chill, try to do something else. And I started reading uh, a lot of books. I just started reading, reading, reading. I read like 10 books in, in a month. I don't know. There was no TV, no internet, no nothing. So that's what the only way you just, you know, escape from reality. It was the only way to get around those days. But now that I look back on it, those were pretty good days also. Like I got to spend a lot of good time with my family, like family time that is the lost thing today. Most people would say that no power, no internet, and no phone is the most cruel form of torture. But for Carlos, it was a blessing. Instead of succumbing to chaos, he reignited his curiosity and found sanctuary in the world of books. Among the titles that he chose were Sapiens to Pixar and Beyond and the biographies of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. He began to see himself in the great titans of industry, in the cultural movements sparked by these entrepreneurial individuals. He embodied their spirit, that resilience that allowed him to get by one day at a time. It couldn't have been easy, but Carlos maintained faith in what lay beyond the horizon. When do you start to get the beginnings of like an idea of that next step? When I was still on my sister's house, I got a little bit of, of Wi-Fi connection. And the only thing that entered to my chat was like, yo, dude, uh, things are, are bad in the company. We will have to let you go. But yeah, I understood. I, I was expecting that also. Not at that point, but yeah, I was expecting that I wasn't going back. I remember we had, didn't have Wi-Fi connection, but we had power by then. I was watching the news that day and I saw uh, a news coverage on a lot of Puerto Ricans that were leaving uh, Puerto Rico because of the hurricane. Four and a half months since Hurricane Maria ravaged Puerto Rico, the storm is changing Florida 
at least 200,000 people from Puerto Rico have moved here since the storm. Some estimate the number is double that. Everyone knows that the situation here is not good, like uh, economically wise and all that stuff. Jobs, there's not a lot, of, a lot of jobs here. So people are just fleeing Puerto Rico to the States to, to make a living, to, to do something with their lives. And the hurricane kind of accelerated that process. I kind of got a little paranoid of that because I, what, what, what is going to happen to Puerto Rico after this hurricane, you know? Did you think about leaving? I thought about leaving once or twice, but I love Puerto Rico. I love my culture. Uh, I, I, I love my heritage. That would be my last resort. I don't know. I feel really Puerto Rican. I want to be here. I want to do things here. It's like a, like a responsibility that I feel that I have. If I leave, it's just like, ah, oh, you quit. What is going to happen to our culture? If everyone leaves, what is going to happen? A lot of people are going to come in, like foreigners. And I was like, oh, what's going to happen? And I just started thinking about ways to connect the culture. And I started thinking about doing an e-commerce with, with books, with Puerto Rican books. So I just gave it a shot. And I just started thinking about, okay... How can I build this, like this website that I can be uh, sell Puerto Rican books to Puerto Ricans in the States to keep them like connected to their culture? And it wasn't something really innovative, but it was something that nobody had any intentions of building. I just thought of it as it's going to be like a hobby that I can spend some time and just enjoy it. This bookstore is a response to, to the hurricane. It's like, I don't know, it felt like I was fighting back. Once upon a time, Carlos wanted to find and marry an exotic girl in a faraway land. But leaving Puerto Rico now and letting the culture crumble would have felt like the ultimate betrayal. I think Carlos realized that what had kept him sane during his time away from home, in his time of sadness and despair, was his Puerto Rican heritage. That culture was worth fighting for. Not only would it be worthwhile for him, but it would also be of great value to his community. Carlos started with books because they are the sources of tradition and the keepers of culture. But how could he really get started? How could he get things going? I called Gerardo. I knew Gerardo from playing soccer, but I knew that he was really into books and stuff because he, he had his own blog with his girlfriend. I was like, maybe this kid, this is the one that I need to like build this because I had all the knowledge in, in the, the, the business side of it. I really had a sense of what was needed to get this done, but I was like, I don't know a lot about books. So... I called him and I was like, I got this crazy idea. And he was like, man, you, you know, the hurricane, like, just... And I was like, no, no, let, let, give me a second. Let me, let me tell you about this idea. I know you like books and stuff. I have this idea. I want to make a website and sell Puerto Rican books, like books written by Puerto Rican authors. And I think you are the person that I need to get this ball rolling, you know. And he was like, okay, talk to me more. Let's start meeting. And he was like, okay, what are we going to do? We don't have internet. And I was like, yeah, we don't have internet. Uh, let's see if we can find some place like a like food place or something. And we started meeting up at a pizza hut near our houses. <laughs> That's the only place that had Wi-Fi. By then, it was like November and I told him, let's launch this on December. 
and we put the date December 5 on, on a piece of paper. Let's do this because if we don't put a, a, like a launch date, we're just gonna procrastinate and this is not gonna turn into nothing. So we did that and we started calling all the contacts that I had from the previous job. And a lot of people didn't even answer. They probably didn't have connection either. It was kind of hard. Probably like a week and a half before launch day, we have like probably 30 books. And I was like, damn, we cannot launch this with 30 books. It's a bookstore. When have you seen a bookstore with 30 books? That sucks. What if we call or, or get in contact with some of the editorials here, the publishing houses, the local ones? They probably have a, have a catalog of uh, around 500 each. So if we get our, uh, maybe two, we can launch a legit bookstore, you know? So we started calling people. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but this is the plan. We don't need to do, for you to do anything. Just give us a PDF, a digital PDF with your catalog. We'll just put it up on our website. And if it sells, we just go there and pick it up and we'll pay you for the book. And they were like, okay, that's, that's not bad. It doesn't hurt them. And we got like two big publishing houses here in Puerto Rico. It was fairly easy. To put it simply, Carlos was locked in. He knew what he needed to do and he knew what needed to happen. Carlos had already taken steps to build mutually beneficial relationships as he had done with his puppets and the soccer summer schools. With these relationships, staying motivated actually became easy because the motive was simple, to create something that would improve the people intertwined within this network of relationships. My expectation was to upload all the books that we had. I even told that man, I had this project, Let's be real. We're not probably going to see a lot of sales in the beginning. We just have to market it. Keep doing our good work on that. We just got out of a hurricane. People are probably not going to buy anything right now. But the first day, an order came in. It was my sister. <laughs> But that was good because we, we started to know how it works. The, the website and all that to fulfill an order. Where do you have to go? Press this button, whatever. Because we didn't have any experience on that. We sold two books for my niece. The next day, uh, another order came in, and this order, I didn't know who the person was. And I was like, we're onto something here. How did they find out about you? I have no clue. Uh, probably social media, because we're, we were in social media, like, posting shit. And there's a new bookstore, you can order online, and you can help Puerto Rico after the hurricane. And we saw a lot of orders coming in, probably because people wanted to help. We just got out this hurricane. This is a good story. It's a, it's a good company. They're doing something good for the community, for the local authors. And I wasn't aware of the impact that our work was going to do. Like after probably three months after that, that we had started getting a lot of press coverage on what we were doing. And I was like, hmm, why is this so interesting to people? One of the reporters was like, I really like what you guys are doing. I would love to do an interview on you guys for the newspaper. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. <laughs> and oddly enough, it turned out to be like the photo of me and my co-founder on the first page, like on the, <laughs> you know, really big. And it was crazy. I was like, damn, I didn't know this was going to be here.
What did you think when you saw yourself on the cover of a newspaper? It felt great and, and it felt good that I was doing something on my own with my friend. We were getting noticed and man, after that, we just went on a roll. There were a lot of programs that uh, were also a response to the hurricane. A lot of, of aids like to capital, equity-free capital, for you to start your business, pre-acceleration programs, acceleration. We got into all of them. In that first application to one of those accelerators, how did your perception of your business change? It switched from being just a hobby to, okay, we're probably going to be on this full time. But we were both on the same page. We were like, hell yeah, let's <laughs> apply and we hopefully we get in and just start growing and growing. The first one we got in, I had to do a pitch before we got elect selected. And I remember I was really afraid because I had no experience on talking or pitching or whatever. And I was like nervous. And when we ended the pitch, we, we did it like a movie high five, man. It was just funny. We were like, <laughs> yeah, man, we killed it. Like chest bump and all. Yeah. I felt really good. And we, we both felt really good about it. A week later that we got the news, you're in. And we were like, oh, yeah, we got $15,000. I never seen that amount of money in my life. <laughs> yeah. How does your business trajectory change? How do you change? It was very interesting because we were for real now. It's not just, it wasn't fun and games anymore. So we got to be really selective of what we do with that money. We just started building the whole plan. Like, this is what we're going to do. Orders started popping in. We started doing a lot of Facebook ads. During the first one, we applied to another one. And we also got in. And we started another pre-acceleration program. This, was, this one was 20K. We just keep growing everything. Keep growing, keep growing. Now, by the second one, Gerardo had finished his, his bachelor's degree and he also moved to San Juan. Now I have Gerardo with me in San Juan. And that's when we said, okay, now it's, it's full on. We're both here. We're both committed. We are in this for real. So, yeah, it was three programs. Startup PR, $15,000. Pre-18, $20,000, and parallel-18, $40,000. Everything went well because we've been growing since. Yeah. And all that money is just for marketing. And the, the sales keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, and it's just been sustainable since then. The money that flooded in from the accelerators quickly reset Carlos's expectations for his company. But the higher bar only drove him and his co-founder to work harder. It said that karma always runs its course, and I would say it did for them. Their story is one that shows the power of passion and good intentions. A project born out of wanting to preserve and grow Puerto Rican culture turned into something that would also prove to be lucrative for the founders, largely because they kept their intentions pure and their original mission in perspective. Everything ran smoothly, right up, until the COVID-19 pandemic brought the world to a standstill. March 15th. Talk to me about that. France was the first country in Europe to confirm cases of coronavirus. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. Officials in Puerto Rico are struggling to test possible COVID-19 patients. This after the governor there canceled a $38 million contract to buy a million test kits from the mainland. From a business standpoint, I was like afraid because, okay, all the, the, the things that we've been through, all the money we've raised and all the hard work we've done, 
is it gonna end this way? Like, uh, is a pandemic gonna kill our business? And at first I was like, okay, this is gonna be probably like a week or so. So I was chilled. But man, when it, when that first uh, quarantine period was ending, then the government extended it. And I was like, oh shit, this, this is not good. And after that, they extended it again. And we were like, okay, we are e-commerce, but if we cannot go into our office, we cannot do anything. And that kind of started stressing me a lot because we only have so so such amount of money for to run for runway if we stay locked down just gonna burn through all your money unless we stop paying ourselves my concern was that that this was gonna be locked down for a lot so when time passed on passed by passed by and i started freaking out like what the fuck when is this gonna end you know Luckily, the government issued like a paper that some sort of businesses could start opening up and e-commerce was one of those. April, mid-April, the orders just blew up. Really? A lot of orders. I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, this is good, <laughs> but it's bad also because we, I'm not sure when are we going back. I hope this, the government lets it back again, because if not, we're going to have thousands of orders to fulfill, <laughs> and it's going to take a lot of work to do it. So orders started coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in, and man, customers started like getting mad, because a lot of people don't read the disclaimer and just order because they, they are also bored at their houses, and they're looking for things to do, and books are one of those products that people are buying a lot right now. And they didn't probably didn't read the disclaimer, and they start ah, what uh, man, where's my book? And we were oh shit, this is going wrong. We probably want to have to shut down the store because if not, we're gonna keep getting orders in and clients mad. That's not good for us either. The government let us go back, and man, we it took us about one month to fulfill all those all, all those orders. Order. Yeah, yeah. I, me and Gerardo did all of it. Curfew was from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. fulfilling orders. And the next day, the same thing. Yeah. Every day. Keep in mind that we're orders are still coming, coming in. in. Yeah. Yeah. It was just resilient all over again. Like it was kind of fun. Also, the only stress that I got was for the clients, like writing us. They get really mad. Yeah. <laughs> But at least we we got to fulfill everything. At by the end of it, everyone was understandable about it. And I don't know. We we've been working since then, and right now, man, it's. Thing is just taking off. Right now, <laughs> the sales have like doubled. It's just crazy. None of us thought that people were going to be buying, that books were going to be a product that the people were going for during these times. But it makes sense when you think about it. Like my belief is that people need to feel like the that life is normal. You know. But yeah, it's just. It's been amazing, the support that we get from our community and, and the people that follow us and been with us since the beginning are like, they are really fans of our, of our work and they appreciate it a lot. It's just, it's humbling in a way. When we started, it was because of the Hurricane Maria and we had a vision based on Hurricane Maria of where we wanted to take our business. Now we are regrouping again and we're thinking, okay, what's going to be the vision from now on? We're thinking, on, okay, a lot of things will change. Uh, we believe that will change from now on. Earlier, we depended uh, a lot of our suppliers because the book sells and we pick it up and then we pay for it. But now we're thinking, okay, we need to bring inventory with us. 
we had a lot of, of problems during the pandemic because, okay, we were able to start working again, but we don't have the books. The suppliers have the books and they cannot open because they do attend public and all that. So we had to do a lot of arrangements, getting to meet up with them at a certain time of the day so they can give us the books that they're sold. So now we're rethinking again the logistics side of what, how are we going to make this work from now on. And sales are good, so that gives us uh, confidence to, to work on, on, the, on the next things. What's your vision five, ten years? At the beginning with Hurricane Maria, it was all about like Puerto Rican uh, books to connect the Puerto Rican community. And we're, we are still that. But now we're thinking like bigger. We're thinking more like Latinos, you know, hmm. how can we connect Latinos together? The hurricane hit Puerto Rico, but the pandemic has hit everyone in the world. So now we're thinking, okay, how can we... Like the same vision that we have with Hurricane Maria, but apply it like in a bigger scale with Latinos all, all around the world. We are expanding our catalog also. Uh, we're bringing in titles from Latino authors. Uh, we're bringing catalog in Spanish that are uh, translated to Spanish also that we didn't work in the beginning. And most of it has been our clients asking for this type of things because things are changing so fast that the traditional way that they used to buy books, they probably uh, bought it at the bookstore. You don't feel safe. There's still a lot of fear. Fear is like, do I really need to expose myself to buy a book when I can buy it online? So things are changing. In hindsight, it makes complete sense that Carlos's business would grow even during the pandemic. Carlos didn't just build a company in the wake of Hurricane Maria. His business thrived, and the challenges that the disaster presented helped to form the company's central values. These same values helped them and many others weather the lockdowns and the uncertainty. In times of isolation, the best thing to do is to learn how to better interact with ourselves and our communities. Carlos's site provided a channel for others to do exactly that. And despite the difficulties, he found the process to be well worth it. I like this quote from Steve Jobs. Everything around you has been built by people not necessarily more smart than you. So if everything that surrounds you has been built by people just like you, what is stopping you from being the next one to build something? That for me is the right mindset Since I came from Spain, that has been my mindset like from day one since I got here. There is nothing stopping you from building something yourself. I think in these crazy times, those words have never been more true. And I couldn't agree more with this sentiment. And I think to really understand this, we should hark back to this idea of community. When I first met Carlos, he told me that the Puerto Rican people were the friendliest people in the world. And on my 10-day trip there, I had more than enough evidence of that. However, I didn't think this friendliness was unique or, for that matter, Puerto Rico's cultural intimacy. What Carlos has done throughout his life is create relationships throughout a small island. He's connected to the land through the people. Yes, this is aided by Puerto Rico's small size, but any community can become small if you spend time getting to know a subsection of it. I think more than anything, Carlos knew how to draw on the resources of his community, even in times of turbulence. He started with his soccer camps, and that project had a ton of community participation, but that was more dealing with personal uncertainty. 
during the hurricane Puerto Rico experienced uncertainty. And Libro 787 gave back to the community to make the uncertain a little more certain, a little more manageable. He engaged with them. He upheld the cultural values. And now, during COVID-19, the whole world is full of uncertainty. But somehow, because of everything Carlos has experienced, he's able to tie back to those experiences and come out stronger in this pandemic. Carlos has been consistently tapping into his roots, and I think that is incredibly important. So in these times of uncertainty, look at your life, your friends, your family, your neighbors. Answer the question, where do you come from? How can you use that to contextualize your life? And what parts of that experience can you draw on to create success in your community, which ultimately will make you happier and more successful too? See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.